0: Hey everybody, special request coming your way. We've got something in the works and we need your help. So, if you are from Philadelphia, or if you live in Philly, or if you have questions about the city of the Liberty Bell, no. uh, we want to hear from you. <laughs> Send us your questions about race, right? Did I get the nickname right there? The
1: disrespect. The disrespect.
0: So it's not the city of the Liberty Bell.
1: Oh, no, it's the city of... Brotherly love It's the 215, the Illadelph, two 21 pound. <laughs> we want questions about race from people who grew up in Philly, like yours truly, who currently live in Philly or are simply curious about the city. That gave us Teddy Pendergrass and Patti LaBelle and, and Tariq Trotter and Phyllis Hyman and me i guess jill scott uh, jill scott, jill scott. Oh, yeah. jill's philly? in there yeah she's oh philly. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and kevin bacon and will smith anyway
0: <laughs> kevin bacon
1: you, you didn't think i was gonna do that i didn't uh, email us your questions at codeswitch at mpr.org with the subject line race in philly simple
0: all righty on to the show I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji.
1: I'm Gene Demby, and this, this right here, this is Code Switch.
0: It is, and it's from NPR. Gene, have you ever done something on a whim, on a complete whim, that changed the entire rest of your life?
1: Hmm, like you know, choose one school over the other school, or ooh. Or like uh, holler at somebody on the subway just randomly. A beautiful Afro woman on the A train, and end up, <laughs> as a result, getting a job at the New York Times, or what? let somebody take your headshot for work, even though you know what I mean. You want the headshot, you don't they don't like photographs very much, and you end up marrying that person.
0: I know that these are all
1: I mean. just hypotheticals. <laughs> you mean things like that?
0: Yes, things like that. Well, I'm going to tell you a story about a young man, and you're going to help me with this, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's finishing up graduate school.
2: Okay. He's broke.
0: Oof. He's looking for a job. Mm-hmm. And a grad school friend says to him, Yo, my husband works at the Smithsonian, and there's a job opening. You should apply.
2: And I remember thinking, who works at the Smithsonian? It's where you take dates because it's free. I mean, that was my whole notion of the Smithsonian.
1: Love a frugal king. <laughs>
2: And on a whim,
0: young Lonnie Bunch decides to give it a shot. He rolls up to the Smithsonian Castle. Mm -hmm. It's this imposing and creepy reddish stone building on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It's intimidating. Mm -hmm. So young Lonnie Bunch rolls up. And on that day, he ends up meeting the
2: guy who runs the joint. And he offered me a job. And that changed the trajectory of my career.
1: So Lonnie lucked into meeting the head of the Smithsonian, which is, like, a big deal because that person usually meets with, like, big wigs and powerful political people in D.C. Not
0: broke grad students. Yeah,
1: not, you know what I mean? Struggling grad students who, you know, too cheap to spend on own dates. <laughs> and then he gets offered a job there? Like, that's either luck or fate. And as we now know, Lonnie G. Bunch III didn't just wind up getting a summer job there. He wound up spending just about his entire career there.
0: That's right. Lonnie G. Bunch is now the 14th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and the Smithsonian's first black secretary. He's in charge of all 19 Smithsonian museums, 21 libraries and the National Zoo.
1: And importantly for our purposes, Lonnie Bunch is also the brother who built the Blacksonian <laughs> or, you know, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Say that 10 fancy. times
0: fast. Exactly.
1: Mm hmm. So, you know, if you think about it, if if Lonnie Bunch never got that random meeting and never got that spontaneous job offer, we might not have a Blacksonian today.
0: Code Switch correspondent Karen Grigsby-Bates talked to Lonnie Bunch about that fateful decision that changed his entire life, about how the coronavirus is affecting the Smithsonian's, and about how he turned entry into the Blacksonian. Into the hottest ticket in town, and she's here with us.
1: What's good, KGB? It has been a minute since we heard from you.
0: Yes, it has. How you doing, Jean? And hey, Shireen. It's good to be back. No
1: well, confession. Um, I've lived in DC the entire time that the Black Blacksonian has been open and up and running. And I still have not been there.
0: I have not been there either.
3: Karen, have you been? I have not. And now that COVID has shut everything down, I don't know when I will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was especially excited to get a sort of
0: behind-the-scenes tour from the creator himself. Which is awesome. We heard just now that Lonnie Bunch wound up at the Smithsonian because a friend recommended he apply for a job there. But I'm guessing... And I'm hoping there's a little more to that story.
3: There is. Ironically, Lonnie has segregation to thank for the arc of his career, at least partially. Uh, What? what? Segregation. Like,
1: Did Jesse Helms write him a letter (laughs) of recommendation or something like that? Like, what?
3: I don't think so. But Lonnie says he was always a history buff from childhood on. Mm -hmm. His family would drive from their home in New Jersey, like a lot of people did, to see his grandmother in North Carolina.
2: When I was 10 or 11 years old, it was the centennial of the Civil War. And I, like many kids, wanted to know about, you know, rebels and Yankees.
3: The farther south they drove, Lonnie says, they'd pass all kinds of Confederate monuments and shrines. And he'd want to get out and inspect them, because history nerd. Mm -hmm. And his dad would always have a reason why they couldn't.
2: He would always say, i got to drive 20 more miles, you know. Didn't
3: want to run out of gas, wanted to get to Grandmama's house before dark. He did not want to make any unscheduled stops.
1: So what I'm hearing there is that his father was just like looking out like we are a black family traveling through the South. We ain't stopping nowhere. We ain't got to stop. Mm-hmm.
3: That's exactly right. And Lonnie and I, Jean, are almost exactly the same age. And when mm-hmm. we were small, the South was still segregated by law for a few years. And it continued to be segregated by custom for many years after the law was erased, as was true in many parts of the country, not just the South.
0: Mm-hmm. So Bates, how was Lonnie Bunch able to feed his hunger, this, you know, insatiable desire he had to learn about U.S. history, since we know his dad wasn't stopping to let him get out and look at Confederate monuments. That's right. His dad was a smart man. Uh, Lonnie says once on the drive back
3: to New Jersey, they stopped in D.C., his whole family, and his father took him to the Smithsonian. And Lonnie's dad, also named Lonnie G. Bunch, Lonnie G. Bunch
2: Jr., would tell him this. Here's a place you can go understand history and science and culture without being worried about how you're going to be treated because of the color of your skin.
3: Hmm. This is the nation's museum, his father told him, your museum. And it became a place where Lonnie wound up bonding with his dad over their shared love of history and culture. And it was the beginning of a lifelong dream to build a museum on the National Mall dedicated to African-American history and culture.
0: Hmm. Well, that is a lovely origin story for Lonnie Bunch, the 14th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. And I am excited to hear more. Karen, I really hope you asked him why he had to give the Blacksonian (laughs) such a such a cumbersome name, though. (laughs) As a matter of fact, Shereen, that's exactly where I began.
3: Does this museum have a nickname? Because the National Museum of African American History and Culture is a real mouthful.
2: Well, you know, I was able to control a lot, but not the choice of the name. <laughs> uh, uh, I think some people call it the Blacksonian. Yeah, we do a code uh, switch. You know? <laughs> Uh, for me it 's just the museum, mm-hmm. um, because I think that in many ways, it tried to set a standard of who museums served, what kind of stories they can tell, um, and how do museums be a place that is as much about today and tomorrow as it is about yesterday mm-hmm. and so, for me, crafting that museum was really based on the fact that for a hundred years, people had struggled to try to get something on the National Mall. And I felt this real commitment to fulfill the dreams of earlier generations, to make sure all that work didn't go for naught. But maybe more than anything else, um, when I was president of Chicago Historical Society, I realized that doing that job really nurtured my soul. Um, There was something about the few black people that get to run these kinds of institutions. But I realized that if I could come back and with a group of people build a museum that reflected the richness and the complexity of African-American history for everybody, then maybe I could nurture the souls of my ancestors. And that just became too powerful for me not to take the chance.
3: In the beginning, the museum was a hard sell to some people. Some people got it right away and they thought, yes, this is what the nation needs, this is what the Smithsonian needs, but some people really thought you were pitching a black museum for black people, and that made it kind of rough sledding. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, I think that there were people who felt that this museum shouldn't exist because maybe the story wasn't that important. There were other people who felt that if the museum existed, it really was a sinecure for black people um, to give them something. And my notion was that the story of black America is too big to be in the hands of one community. But in essence, the African-American experience is the quintessential American experience. And I wanted people to understand that if you wanted to know about American core values of resiliency, optimism, spirituality, where better to look than the African-American community. And if you wanted to understand the limits of the promise of America, If you want to understand those moments when that promise of America was expanded to many more, look at the African-American community. So people
3: really flocked to it, all kinds of people, and considered it theirs. Um, It was a bit of a crowd control problem in the beginning. Um, The Blacksonian's been closed for the better part of a year now. And even before that, it was kind of hard to get into after years of being open. So for people who haven't had the chance to visit, describe a bit the experience of being inside of it.
2: What I wanted was when you walked in, I wanted you to have an experience that would take you from the very beginnings, from the slave trade, all the way through today. And that when you walk in, you take an elevator down and suddenly you're surrounded by what Africa was like before Europeans came and what Europe was like before Africans came, but then it's really dominated by the slave trade. You see there, you see the names of hundreds and hundreds of ships that carried the um, Africans to the New World or to the Caribbean. Um, you then explore what slavery shaped the country. Rather than sort of say, let's talk about Jamestown, let's talk about the Puritans. I said, slavery shapes everything from Massachusetts to Jamestown. And we give you a walk through a lot of slavery through the 19th century. You actually get to see a slave cabin where people lived. Um, And we take you through really a very difficult history that goes from slavery to today. And then you begin to go up. And as you go up, while you're still dealing with difficult history, you suddenly are now looking at things like music and sport um, uh, and fashion and theater. And so what I wanted was not for people to think it was a linear march to progress, because the way the museum is done, you go up and back, up and back. Mm-hmm. So you got to work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted people to recognize that there is hope within this story, um, that here is a community that believed in an America that didn't believe in it. Here's a community that constantly challenged, prodded, struggled to help America live to its stated ideals. But here was a community that also found joy as it tapped its toes to Aretha Franklin or Duke Ellington. So I wanted this to be a place that would give you tension between moments where you would cry as you pondered the pain of slavery and segregation and moments where you'd find joy and resiliency.
3: This museum is filled with thousands and thousands of interesting things, but I'm wondering if there's one thing in particular that you keep returning to that gives you hope.
2: One of the things that I find so hopeful is there's a slave cabin, right, from Edisto Island, South Carolina. And when that cabin was a home of the enslaved, the owner made sure there was only one door. You had to come in and out the same way so that one, they can control your your movement. As soon as freedom came, the first thing they did was open a back door so they could go out on their own. And for me, that notion of how do you symbolically say you are a different person, you are no longer owned. So every time I look at that cabin, And I look at those two doors, I look at them both as an example of limiting people's hopes and and expectations, but people use what they could to say, we are free, we deserve to be treated differently. So I take great optimism every time I view that cabin. All
1: right, y'all, after the break, we're going to hear more from Lonnie G. Bunch III and how the Blacksonian was almost a museum that never happened.
2: So I always called it the museum of no, but the good thing is, all the people that came to work with me, we never took no for an answer.
0: Stay with us.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Just Egg. Start your tradition with Just Egg. Use Just Egg in your favorite omelet, scramble, frittata, or French toast. It's like the eggs you're used to, but made from plants and with no cholesterol. Just Egg is also better for the planet, using 93% fewer carbon emissions and 98% less water than a conventional egg. Another good reason to go plant-based. Look for Just Egg at your local grocery or co-op.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation. Creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power. Powering freedom. Learn more about the Foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the Foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook.
0: Hearing loss is a fact of life for many humans, but not for fish, reptiles, or birds.
2: People noticed in chickens that they could take them to, say, heavy metal concert, blast the ears really to oblivion, and then within days, new hair cells would begin to sprout.
0: The science of sound. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Jean. Shirin.
1: Karen. Code Switch.
0: More with Karen, your interview with Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institute and the creator of the Blacksonian. Lonnie actually wrote a book about that process, creating the Blacksonian, called A Fool's Errand, Creating the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the Age of Bush, Obama, and Trump.
1: Oh, man. So those are three very different presidential administrations you know what I mean three very different moments <laughs> to in say the least the ongoing you know national conversations about race so I'm really curious about how those very different administrations are connected to the building the construction of this museum
3: Jean suffice it to say Lonnie went through a lot Uh And he said he hoped and continues to hope that this museum can meet the moment for all the different eras that it's going to be around for. But before he could even worry too much about the people who would visit the museum, eventually he had to build the thing. And I remember in your um, book about the building of the museum, you said in the beginning
2: you used to refer to it as the Museum of No. What did you mean by that? (laughs) Well, when we started... And I'm, I'm still amazed that I said yes. We had one staff, we had no collections, we had no money, we had no site where the museum would be, we had no architect. All we had were the hopes and dreams uh, of many earlier generations. So I always called it the museum of no. Um, but the good thing is, um, all the people that came to work with me, we never took no for an answer.
3: It's in an interesting site. It's in a beautiful site. Did you know it was going to be in that precise place?
2: No. Normally, before this moment, when Congress would ask the Smithsonian to build a building, they'd say, put it here, Mm -hmm. a particular place. Mm -hmm. In this case, they said, we're not going to tell you, we're not going to give you a site. We're going to say, there's some sites for you to evaluate. Two were way off the mall. Uh, One was an old building on the mall. And the fourth was that site. And I knew that that site is what I wanted because I thought this story needed to be on the National Mall, but I had to analyze all the sites, make the arguments, um, and convince the regents that this was the right place for it to be, and clearly it was, but there was great opposition. There were people who said, um, you know, if you put it on the Mall there, it's going to block views of the Washington Monument. There are others who said, oh my God, you're killing grass. You should, there should be more green space. So there are a lot of reasons, some very legitimate, some other ways to stand in the way of progress.
3: You know, one of the interesting things about the site is that you can see water from where you are. And I think you discovered you could also see water when you were building it that you hadn't necessarily expected. Um, talk about that a little bit and about what that means for the future of any other buildings that might be built on the mall.
2: Well, you know, the Washington is a swamp. Yep. And in the 18th century, the, the Potomac River came all to where the mall is now. So when we were doing the work on the mall, building a museum, you know, we, we knew there was water, but we were told that it was a kind of Tiber, a little creek and, you know, there are ways you can handle that. Well, we started digging. Now, part of it is my fault, because I think the initial notion was that we wouldn't go down as far as I wanted them to. Mm-hmm. But I wanted that notion of being down deep and slowly working your way up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened was that as designers came up with those ideas, I loved them, Um, We had to go down deeper and then we hit water and water kept coming and it kept filling up and everything they did didn't work. And I remember having one of the worst couple of weeks thinking I have really failed because what I've done is built the largest swimming pool ever on the (laughs) national mall. Um, And I was terrified that we couldn't get that water done. And luckily gifted engineers from around the world, from the Netherlands and other places, helped us think this through, and found ways to get rid of that water. But what it told me is that any future buildings are going to have to think very creatively and carefully about the water.
3: You've said that for many people, the museum has had even greater significance since the 2016 election. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, the museum for many people became a symbol of... America at its best, when I think of the opening of the museum in 2016 with President Bush and President Obama and Chief Justice Roberts, and you know, who's who are the political and cultural landscape, um, that reminded me of what America can do when it crosses partisan lines, when it crosses racial lines and comes together. So many people then saw the museum as, as John Lewis saw it, a culmination of the civil rights movement. Other people saw it as a symbol that should remind America that there's still work to do, but that um, to be optimistic in that work. And so I think for many people, um, as we had a different political environment, people came and saw it as a way to celebrate a progressive view, to celebrate change, to also celebrate something that brought people together rather than divided them. So I think in some ways, it's a very powerful symbol of what is possible when we come together.
3: I remember after uh, the museum opened and Donald Trump was elected, there was a lot of talk on social media about, well, that's one president that's never going to walk through the doors. But he actually did, didn't he?
2: Well, you know, I, I my notion is that the role of the museum is to educate everyone, you know? So whoever wants to come through, I'm more than willing to tell those stories. And I think that um, President Trump learned things he hadn't seen before. What have you I've learned? learned, and I've seen, and they've done an incredible job. And we're now going to look at the Ben Carson exhibit, and that's very exciting to me. Um, and so for me, it was just another example of why the museum is so important. Because stories that I thought most people knew, I realized they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and... To be able to frame this as the story of us all, I think everybody that's gone through it, from President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, I think they've all been changed, some more than
3: others. (laughs) Did you have people who you were surprised wanted to visit, you know, people that you would think, oh, he's he's not going to have any interest in this, um, who decided that they wanted to see this museum, this new place?
2: You know, I never thought about it that way. I I was just... Humbled by everybody who wanted to come in, whether it was you know Hollywood celebrities, uh, people in the political community, um, almost every foreign visitor, foreign dignitary wanted to come through. Um, And so, no, I I really wasn't surprised by um, some particular person coming in. What I was gratified was is that people recognized that it was a must see. Mm -hmm. Um, That. You couldn't understand the Smithsonian. You couldn't understand Washington. You couldn't understand America without going through that museum. And that's really been very powerful to me. The other thing that's been so powerful is that, as you mentioned, is a symbol in the United States, but it's also a symbol globally. I've had more people call me and say, you were able to talk about America through an African-American lens. If you could do that, maybe we could do that as Afro-Ecuadorians in Ecuador. Or um, we can do this if we do it in the U.K. or if we do it looking at Germany or France. I think it moved the cultural community forward.
3: Because you are sort of, you're the castle now. You used to have to fight with the castle in order to get the things you (laughs) need. Now you are the castle. Do people worry that you are, that because you came from this now famous museum, maybe that's where your heart is and that's where the allocations will go? Is there a bit of a political struggle about that?
2: I think there's always people who will say he takes care of his favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no doubt in my mind that, remember, I worked at the Air and Space Museum, I worked at the American History Museum, so I consider myself a Smithsonian person. But there's no doubt that when you spend 14 years of your life building something, it has a special place, it will always be. And so the challenge for me is to recognize one, but I had to let go of that and bring in. We brought, We hired this very great young director, Kevin Young, um, and you know, let let him do what he's got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people recognize that I care about the Smithsonian, um, and I will do everything I can to be fair about the Smithsonian because it is, I think, one of the great wonders of the world. But I also know, being very honest, that nothing will ever match building the National Museum of African American History and Culture.
3: Nothing. So now that you're head of all of the Smithsonian museums, uh, you probably wander in and out of them from time to time when they're open. I'm wondering if there's one thing in one of the other museums that you're particularly drawn to, a favorite.
2: One of the things that has always inspired me has been when I walk into the Air and Space Museum, And I see the Wright Flyer, the plane that the Wright brothers used to basically transform the way we view our world, transform the way we traveled. And I think of how could somebody, you know, think of what they did, think of that little crate and make it fly. And so for me, the possibilities of America are often something that I get inspired by when I see something like the Wright brothers flyer. Um, because they shouldn't have believed, but they did.
3: Um, You've said you wanted the National Museum to be a museum not only for things in the past, but it must look at things going forward. What's the Smithsonian doing with its museums to sort of keep itself in the public eye? Can I virtually visit some of the museums to get some of this emotional, cultural sustenance you've talked about?
2: So when... We closed the Smithsonian museums um, in March of last year. Mm -hmm. I made it clear the buildings were closed but the Smithsonian was open. So we pivoted to make sure that we could do so much more virtually. Mm -hmm. We immediately put so much of our educational material online. We created something called Learning Lab where teachers can go in and use Smithsonian collections to, to develop lesson plans and the like, but the key was to realize that there were not only teachers trying to teach remotely, but parents were suddenly becoming teachers, so we wanted to be that trusted source where they could get information, and so all of that has meant us to think about what's the new normal for the Smithsonian? How does the Smithsonian make sure that it's doing work that matters, that is not just work that is enjoyable and entertaining? A work that's educational and meaningful, and ultimately, what you what you want to come out of this is for people to look at the Smithsonian and say, you know, they've helped me understand the history of vaccines and how vaccines like the polio vaccine um, ended a pandemic, or they've helped me think about how to understand that the murder of George Floyd is part of a long history of broken racial bodies, um, and that we can take sustenance that we can use that history to push us forward. So I want us to be a place that has a strong contemporary resonance.
3: You uh, started this conversation by telling me that when your dad would drive you all south, um, he didn't stop at the Confederate memorials or museums, but when he came back towards the north, and D.C. is kind of still in the South, if you listen to John Kennedy and other people. He showed you the Smithsonian and said, this is a place where you can come, you can learn, you can explore, and you will be treated equitably. Your dad's been gone for a while now, if I understand correctly. About eight years. What do you think? He didn't live, he knew you were working on this, but he didn't get to see the the finished thing. What do you think your dad would say?
2: You know, when we opened the museum that September day, um, I was nervous, terrified. My God, you've got President Obama, President Bush, John Lewis to speak, yeah, who am I? Um, and as it was my turn to speak, I remember just my legs were jelly. I was scared to death. And as I turned to the podium, I heard people calling out my name, Lonnie Bunch. Now I'm Lonnie Bunch Third. So suddenly I thought of my grandfather who started life as a sharecropper and changed the trajectory of my family. I thought of my father who couldn't be the chemist he wanted to be and pivoted to become an amazing teacher for 35 years. And I suddenly realized that what they were doing by calling that name is they weren't honoring me. They were honoring my grandfather and my father and that they were helping all of us to remember that we celebrate those who were famous, maybe only to their families. And so for me, um, what I hope is that my grandfather and my father first are laughing, saying, what, are you kidding me? This is the kid that was so shy, wouldn't want to talk in front of people. Um, But I hope they think that what I did was make sure that they and all of our ancestors are remembered and that we've centralized the story of the African-American as a quintessential American story. So I hope like every son, you want your father to be proud of you. So I hope so.
0: Well, I am not allowed to cry every single episode. So I'm just going to say thank you. Thank you, Karen, for bringing us that lovely conversation with Lonnie Bunch, the first black secretary of the Smithsonian Institution.
1: Yeah, thank you, KGB. My pleasure. And that is our show, y'all. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at NPR Code Switch and subscribe to our newsletter. It's very, very dope. By going to NPR.org slash Code Switch Newsletter.
0: This episode was produced by Jess Kung and edited by Leah Danella. And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia, Steve Drummond, Alyssa Jong Perry, Natalie Escobar, Kumari Devarajan, and L.A. Johnson. Our intern is Summer Tomad.
1: I'm Gene Demby.
0: And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji.
1: Be easy, y'all.
0: Peace.
3: On NPR's Consider This podcast, we don't just help you keep up with the news, we help you make sense of what's happening. Like what the case about George Floyd's killing means for the ongoing fight for racial justice, or how to best navigate a pandemic that's changed life for all of us. All of that in 15 minutes every weekday. Listen now to Consider This from NPR.